to lead worship. I said, why would you do that? We need him here. She goes, Joe, we're a movement, not an institution. We sacrifice, blah, 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 blah. So stupid. <laughs> um, you have to pardon me. I was actually planning on being with them this morning to help, but I came here on Thursday, mor- Thursday night for rehearsal. I just couldn't go. I figured I needed to reserve my voice for preaching, so they, even that plan she had was kind of thrown in, you know, had a wrench thrown in it. So good job for, for all three of them today. They did a good job for us. Um, we're going to start our summer series on Philippians. Uh, By the way, I'm Joe Davis. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at the Garden. And usually what happens, sometimes in the summer, the crowd gets smaller. So now I know that I'm talking to those of you that are actually Christians. For those that aren't here, (laughs) those that aren't here listening on the podcast, we're praying for you. So, Um, The title of this series is called With Love from Prison. And the reason for that is, (coughs) excuse me, just to give you some historical background, on Philippians. Philippians was written while Paul was in prison, and it was written to mostly a Gentile church. And it's amazing because he shows incredible affection for these non-Jewish believers. It's pretty amazing. Now there's speculation. Paul was in prison several times, and the speculation is that he was in prison during the second time in Rome because the emotions in this book are very high because he has this sense of impending death, that he's about to be put to death, that his life is about over, but he's at peace with that. But at the same time, being near death, being near the point where he's possibly executed, it brings up a lot of memories. It brings up a lot of nostalgia. It brings up a lot of emotion. So as we go through this book, you have to understand this is written by a man who most likely is in tremendous emotional distress. He's in a situation where he knows he's probably not going to get out this time. And to give you a little bit of background on how he ended up in Rome, he was actually before a judge, and they were going to sentence him to death, and he said, I appeal, as a a Roman citizen, I have a right to take my case to Caesar, to Rome. So that's how he's in Rome right now. And he's in prison, and he's writing to the Philippians. Now, another person who's in this book that you need to know about is a man called Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus had delivered a gift from the Philippians to Paul, and while delivering that gift, Epaphroditus became very sick, kind of like me. But he recovers. His, death, his sickness was much worse. It was, he became deathly ill, but he recovers and sends this emotional heartfelt letter with Epaphroditus back to the church of Gentiles in Philippian, in, in Philippi. And it's a pretty amazing thing. And so as we go through this series <coughs> over the next eight weeks or so, I want you to keep in mind that there is an emotional backdrop that is very heavy. Don't look at these words, oh, that's nice and poetic, oh, that's a cute thing for him to say. Understand he's facing impending death. An execution for being somebody who stirs up too much political unrest because of the gospel. So with that in mind, I want to read you a passage. This week it's called Loving and Truth, by the way. It's the name of this 
passage and I'll, or this message, and I'll explain that to you in just a minute. But I want to look at this passage. I only wrote the first few verses up there just for lack of space and stuff. But I'm going to read 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 to 18. Listen carefully to the words. This is key, okay? We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother lives or abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how can the love of God live in him? My little children, let us not just love in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Now this, pla this passage explains why it's critical that we take some time over the next couple of months to learn what it really means to love God's people. Because really, guys, if you think about it, it's very hard to misunderstand what it is that he's saying. Am I right? It's really hard to misunderstand what John is saying. He's saying, look, if you don't love your brothers and sisters, you're not a Christian. Life doesn't live in you. If you have the world's needs and you see a brother in need and you turn your back, you're like a murderer. It's very harsh stuff that John says. <clears throat> so we must understand, it's critical for you to understand how important it is to define what it means to love God's people. Because without it, we're not really a church. And without it, there's no evidence. And he says the best way to assure your heart, the best way to make yourself be confident that God dwells in you is that you love the brothers and sisters in your church. There's something magical about the relationship we as Christians can have with one another. It is imperative that we learn more about what John meant when he said we need to love not just in word, but in deed and in truth. Because see guys, word love is cheap. Word love, I love you. That's easy. That didn't cost me a dime. It cost me about two seconds. I've told some of you that I love you and I don't even know you that well. So don't think you're special. <clears throat> I think when he says love indeed, I think what he's referring to is something we learned a few weeks ago about generosity and sacrifice. That costs a bit more than just word love. But what is this loving and truth thing that he's talking about? What does it mean to love indeed and in truth? Well, I believe that loving in truth, other than family love, it's the strongest bond that people can have. It's loving God's people based upon a common ground in the gospel. And the book of Philippians is the greatest example of how to express real love for God's people using the example of Paul's love for the Philippians. Let's look at this and remember, he's in prison facing death. 
Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the elders and the deacons and everybody else, right? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because even as I sit here ready to die, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and as I sit here ready to die, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, even after I'm dead, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And as I'm ready to die, it is right for me to tell you that I feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart. For you all, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For as I'm sitting here ready to die, God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I don't think it's much of a stretch to believe that Paul, when he was writing this, was crying. He had invested a lot in the Philippians. <clears throat> and his expression of love is a foundational example of what we must adhere to if we are going to learn the rest of this book. I bet you've never seen somebody do that while they preach. Right there. So what are we going to do? We're going to break this down for you. We're going to help you understand exactly how Paul loves the Philippians in truth and why he loves them. The first thing we see that he's thankful for their part in God's family. He says, being, uh, he says here, I thank my God every time I remember of you. There's a recognition that God has given them to him and him to them. And he remembers them with fondness for their spiritual life, not disdain for their weaknesses, which there were plenty. And we talk about them later on in the book. But you understand, guys, this takes tremendous maturity on our part. It takes maturity for us to remember and think about your brothers and sisters for what God is doing in their life and not for their flaws and deficiencies. It is so easy to have conversations about each other centered upon where we screw up. It takes much maturity to be able to look past the deficiencies and say, man, I am thankful for what God is doing in bringing you to our family. The second thing he does, it says he loves to pray for them. He says always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy for your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. Notice there's consistency there. Always, every time I pray, I think of you. Every time. It's not just a passing fancy. I'm obsessed with praying for you. And there's also joy. He says, and I love it when I'm obsessed about praying for you. I pray all the time with joy. And how does he pray? 
He prays for their continued partnership in the gospel. And why was it that Paul loved them so much? Because he felt this kinship, this teammateship. He knew that they were alongside of him every step of the way, providing for his needs, praying for him, sending him people to help like Epaphroditus, things like that. The Philippians were intimately involved in Paul's ministry. And Paul says, every time I pray for you, it's with great joy, and I'm so thankful as I pray, and I think about how you have partnered with me in ministry like no one else has. <coughs> That's pretty amazing. The next thing, he recognizes God in their lives. Here's what he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. See, he has confidence of God working in their lives. And he knows that as God works, the things that Paul has been so impressed with so far is nothing compared to what God is going to do going forward. You see, what Paul recognizes, especially since he's facing impending death, he's about to have his head chopped off. He knows that the growth of the Philippians is not dependent on him. Sometimes when I think about the people that God has brought in my life, be they people from the garden, people from past ministries, young people from nightlife or things like that, sometimes I really get self-absorbed and I think to myself, if I'm not around, who's going to take care of them? Paul knew as he was getting ready to die who was going to take care of the Philippians. He knew that God was in their life and God was going to continue the work. Paul begins to recognize the level of his, I guess the best way to put it is, he's starting to recognize he's not so important when it's compared to what God is doing in the life of the Philippians. See, this brings the most important part of loving God's people in truth to the forefront, recognizing you're not the most important thing in their life. Your judgment on their failures is not the most important thing. Your role of being used by God to help them grow is not the most important thing. God in their heart is the most important thing, and Paul recognized that. He recognized God in their lives, and he realized why they had grown. He would have begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And the last thing he shows <coughs> is this desire to see them continue to grow. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in the knowledge of all discernment, that you may approve what things are good and excellent. You may be sincere without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. And here's what he says. While I'm excited about what's happened in your life, while I love to pray for you every time, every time I think of you, it's with all joy, and I think of you all the time. You've been a partner with me, and all that stuff is great. I know God's going to complete his work, but you know what else? I'm excited about what's to come in your life, even after I'm gone. And it's a pretty amazing treatise he puts forth in these first 11 verses. And he says, basically, in summary, I love you because God loves you. 
and I can't believe what has happened. Now, let's make sure you understand something. These were not Jewish people. These were not Paul's people. They were Gentiles. God had saved them. God had grown them. God had made them pivotal players in Paul's ministry. This is about 20 years after Christ had died, maybe 25 years. 25 years after the first Easter. And Paul says, as I sit here ready to die, you're the people I think of. Wow. What was it about the Philippians that could turn Paul's thoughts to them constantly in his last days? <clears throat> so the question I have for you How does seeing the work of God in the lives of your brothers and sisters impact your heart and your mind? Let's think about that for a minute. Do you even notice it? Are you ever amazed by it? Do you ever think about this? I mean, do you ever even see God's hand? Do you even have eyes that can see this? What does loving God's people in truth mean? It means you can see the truth in their lives. Far too often, we as churchgoers, we have eyes for what's going right in the service or what's going wrong in the service. We have eyes for what program is working, what program is not working. We have eyes for what the churchyard looks like. We have eyes for the bulletin. We look the typos. <laughs> but how good is your eyesight when it comes to seeing the work of God in the lives of those around you. Are you oblivious to it? Or are you amazed by it? How often do you recognize the work of God's hand in the lives of your brothers and sisters? Are you more focused on flaws, deficiencies, shortcomings? Here's the scary part. According to John, if you have a heart and eyes that struggle to be encouraged by the work that God does in other people, you may not have spiritual life yourself. John says that, right? It's pretty hard to argue that, right? He says, if you don't love your brother, then you probably don't love God. So we've got a problem here. What we're going to be doing over the next eight to nine weeks we're going to try to figure out what does John mean when it says we need to love in deed and in truth. The first lesson we see this week is how Paul loved them. Yes, his expression was with words, but his words say, I love you because I'm amazed at what God is doing in your life. So as a church, this summer, it's an opportunity for us to begin to recognize in each other what God is doing in our heart and to start being amazed at what he's doing with your brother and your sister. And I believe, this is cru crucial as I close, I believe that when we begin to recognize that aspect of what God is doing, it's going to dramatically change the way we treat one another 
It's going to dramatically change the way we interact. It's going to change the way we serve together. It's going to change the way we sacrifice for one another. And it's going to begin to change the impact that we can have to those around us. It's a very special bond that Christians can have. Because when God's hand works in people's lives, his fingers come together, bringing them closer. I invite you to 